From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, as part of our new Cornerstone series, we look back at two articles that have helped change the way we view systemic education reform efforts in the U.S. Even if all of the efforts of systemic reform in the 1990s were successful and we produced all these aligned policies, there could be so much work and so many demands on people that they'd still feel overwhelmed and fragmented. And it's that sense of overwhelmingness and and fragmentation that we were trying to address. We welcome Teachers College professor Thomas Hatch, author of the 2002 article, How Improvement Programs Collide, and co-author of the seminal 2004 study led by Meredith Honig, titled Crafting Coherence, How Schools Strategically Manage Multiple External Demands. Hatch joins Fordham University's Elizabeth Lisey Stosich to discuss his and Honig's work, its ongoing influence, and new knowledge he's accumulated over the past two decades. You can't just cut yourself off from people with whom you disagree or the outside world, or you lose access to resources, people, and information. So I think my experience over the last 20 years or so has really just reinforced both the difficulty of the challenges of this bridging and buffering, but also how important it is to approach it from a collective perspective. That's right now on Research Minutes. And welcome. I'm Elizabeth Lisey Stosich. I'm an assistant professor of educational leadership, administration, and policy at Fordham University. And I'm here with Tom Hatch, professor of education at Teachers College Columbia, as well as the co director of the National Center for Restructuring Education, Schools, and Teaching, NCRES. So, welcome, Tom. Thanks, Elizabeth. So back in 2002, you published an article in Phi Delta Cap entitled, When Improvement Programs Collide. Then in 2004, you published a study with Meredith Honig in Educational Research titled, Crafting Coherence, How Schools Strategically Manage Multiple External Demands. So in the years since, your work in this area in general has taken on a heightened level of importance. So to start, I'd be curious to know how you came to study issues of coherence and alignment in educational policy and practice. So could you tell us about what motivated your interest in this topic? Well, first of all, thank you, Elizabeth, for this uh, opportunity to talk with you. And it's been very interesting to look at how some of these issues related to coherence have resonated in your own work related to the Common Core in particular. But this is an issue that really came about in the work that I was doing with a number of different school reform organizations in the, in the 1990s. And of course, that was the time after A Nation at Risk at 1983, when there was really this upsurge of interest in educational reform and a lot of educational reform activity going on all all around. And in the 1990s, I was part of an organization called Atlas, which was put together in response to a request for proposals from the New American Schools Development Corporation. This was around 1991 in the first Bush administration. And it was a competition, very much like the XQ uh, schools competition now, 
that was soliciting proposals for what at the time they called break the mold school designs. And the organization I was working with, Harvard Project Zero with Howard Gardner and David Perkins and others, saw this as a great opportunity to come together with some of the other organizations that were working to help schools uh, really create new kinds of learning experiences and new kinds of schools. It was an opportunity for all of us to come together and try to put together what we'd learned and develop one thoughtful, coherent educational reform package, essentially, from kindergarten through 12th grade. And then there were two pieces of this work that really led to the work on coherence. The first piece was just in the Atlas endeavor itself. The partner organizations were the Harvard Project Zero, which was focusing on issues like teaching for understanding and supporting the development of multiple intelligences and did a lot of work on curriculum and alternative assessments. The Education Development Center in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a kind of a long-standing research and development organization that had developed a curriculum related to man, a course of study, done a lot of work on technology integration into schools, and a lot of work on curriculum and assessment. And then also we partnered with the Coalition of Essential Schools, which was led by Ted Sizer, which was really focused on supporting the work of teachers and principals in really kind of overthrowing the district bureaucracy to be able to create the kinds of learning experiences they cared about. And then we partnered as well with the school development organization, the school development program at Yale, which was led by Jim Comer, which was a a program focused on improving schools by bringing members of the school and the larger community together and creating shared decision-making, improving the climate in the school overall. So the idea was bringing all these together into a single kind of framework for reform would be a powerful means of changing schools. But but the reality was even the four of these organizations working kind of outside schools on our own just to try and put our ideas together into one coherent framework was extremely difficult. And I've, I've written about this in a piece called The Differences in Theory That Matter in the Practice of School Improvement and some other places. But it just highlighted for me how difficult it is just mechanically and practically to put together different ideas in terms of school improvement. And then I realized it was even more difficult and complicated for those in schools because in the Atlas Project, we would go and work in schools, particularly in Norfolk, Virginia, Prince George's County, Maryland, and Gorham, Maine. And often when we would go to work in those schools and districts, I would bump into people that I knew from Harvard or other places that were working on other reform programs that were trying to put their program in place. And so we had this experience that there were multiple programs that were trying to help schools improve. And that first article, How Improvement Programs Collide, really tried to explore the conditions and the the realities that make it very difficult for schools to try to make sense of and put together those programs. So that really brought me into that work. And then the article on crafting coherence really came out of a a partnership with uh, Meredith Honig, who was working at Stanford at the time, and then joined me at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching for a postdoc. And she was also looking at these issues, but particularly from the standpoint of the work of folks in the central office. And she was looking at the role that they played in helping folks in schools to make sense of and take advantage of the policy demands and opportunities in the wider environment. 
And so those kind of sets of issues that were emerging in the 1990s were part of what really put this issue on the map for us. That's really interesting. I was hoping you could talk more about the distinction between coherence and alignment. I guess when I've thought about alignment, when I've read your work, I've typically thought more about the alignment of policies as written, sort of federal or state district policies. But then when I was curious, when you're talking about sort of your work across these organizations in trying to develop a common framework to understand your thinking and support schools in using this work to support reform, would you describe that as more of an issue of trying to align the ideas or one more related to coherence? So I'd be interested in hearing how sort of that initial work relates to these these ideas. So I think that's a really interesting question, and it highlights the ways in which alignment can happen and in some ways needs to happen across multiple dimensions at the same time. And then that kind of creates and, and some of the challenges related to coherence, which I'll talk about in a second. But in terms of alignment, I think you're right that one key aspect of alignment for schools and in education is the alignment in policies from, say, the federal level to the state level to the district level. And you have may have more elaborate policies or expectations or demands that are produced at the state or the district level, but the hope is that those are consistent with the aims and objectives of the policies at different levels. But I think the systemic reform work of the 1990s was, you know, certainly one aspect of that was around aligning policies. But the hope was that by aligning those policies, it would help to create a more aligned system in which the different players in the system, which would include teacher education providers, curriculum developers, assessment developers, you know, researchers, that all of these folks would then be producing materials that were consistent with the policies that were set forth. And that was part of the idea around the standards. If we could come to some broad agreement on what the standards should be, then all of the elements, not just the policy parts of the system, but also all these other players in the education system could work in an aligned way. But the distinction that I make is you could have a system that's aligned, where the policies are aligned, or the teacher education and curriculum and assessment, the different professional development, all of that is technically aligned, but it could still be so complicated or overwhelming that it would be experienced by people on the ground as, as overwhelming and incoherent. And so that's why I talk about alignment is really a structural issue. It's a technical issue. Um, it's almost a, you know, a kind of practical engineering. Do the gears fit together? Are they aligned? And the questions around coherence are questions of meaning. It's, it's how we interpret our work within this broader system. Do we feel like it's, co it's coherent? So in that sense, even if all of the efforts of systemic reform in the 1990s were successful and we produced all these aligned policies, there could be so much work and so many demands on people that they'd still feel overwhelmed and fragmented. And it's that uh, sense of overwhelmingness and, and fragmentation that we were trying to address, particularly in thinking about that article around crafting coherence, where I think we really emphasize that this is an issue of learning 
and meaning making that people and organizations like schools are engaged in. Yes, I think it's resonated with me as sort of that difficult work of making sense of policies that in some cases are intended to be and on paper appear aligned, but it still leaves a lot of work for, um, in particular, leaders and districts and schools to do. So another question I wanted to learn more about was around how you're thinking about this process, this meaning-making process of crafting coherence has evolved over the course of your research and your work with educators. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. The more I've worked with school leaders, and I do work with superintendents now, and also more and more with, with, with intermediary organizations or support providers like Atlas and New Visions for Public Schools and others in New York City and, and other places, is the recognition that everybody is engaged in this process at the same time. In some ways, we think about the process of crafting coherence as an individual challenge. I need to make sense of my environment and, and what I'm doing so that I can develop my own sense of agency and, and belief that my, my actions fit together, it's a, that I have a sensible approach to what I'm doing. But the reality is I have to do that at the same time that everybody else is trying to craft their own coherence and every other organization is trying to craft their own coherence. And so in some of the work that I've done more recently, one is a study of all of the improvement or support providers that are trying to help public elementary schools in New York City to improve K-3 reading outcomes. And this is a, a topic which I talked about in another CPRI podcast, so I won't go into it in detail here. But the bottom line is we found there are 112 of these organizations that are trying to work with schools. And so each one of those organizations is trying to craft a coherent understanding of their role and their work with the people in their organization at the same time that the schools they're working with are trying to develop their own sense of coherence. And they're trying to do that within the New York City Department of Education, which is trying to develop its own you know, sense of coherence within the larger system. So in that sense, I've started thinking more about issues of not just how does an individual or an organization craft coherence, but how do we collectively try to create an environment in which all of us can have a coherent and sensible understanding of the work in which we're engaged. And this is also, we've picked this up in some work looking at the way uh, the efforts to improve new schools in New York City and to create new schools and to create more innovative educational experiences for, for students. You know, there's 700 new schools that have been created in the last 15 years in New York City, but not only individual schools that have been created, but also a whole set of uh, support providers who are also trying to support that work. And in order to survive, both those schools and those support providers have to be constantly kind of bridging and buffering the, the demands of the external environment so they can both do the work that they think is important and fulfill their mission at the same time that they get enough support and they maintain enough support to do the work that they think is crucial. And, it, and, and finding that balance in terms of bridging and buffering, you know, you can't just cut yourself off from people with whom you disagree 
or the outside world, or you lose access to resources, people, and information, they're absolutely crucial and can be crucial for your long-term success. So I think, you know, my experience over the last 20 years or so has really just reinforced both the difficulty of the challenges of this bridging and buffering, but also how important it is to approach it, you know, from a collective perspective. Yes, I think sort of what's resonated with me, and certainly I found true in my own research on how principals and teachers craft coherence among the Common Core teacher evaluation their own school goals is, like you described, really the difficulty of this work. Whether these policies seem connected and aligned or not, um, this presents a real challenge for educators. And I think one thing that stood out in my own research, too, is the critical role that leaders play. So in schools, really, the critical role principals can play. So, you know, in thinking about the Common Core and teacher evaluation, the idea is that, you know, these expectations for teachers are supposed to reinforce the high expectations for students described in the Common Core. But essentially, what I found was that the introduction of the teacher evaluation policy undermined rather than reinforced attention to the Common Core standards in schools with weaker instructional leaders. So essentially, the introduction of another policy, even one that seemed aligned on paper, is increasing sort of the complexity, the difficulty of the work of policy implementation, and thus presents an additional challenge to principals as the reform leaders in their school. And so one of the things I'd be interested in learning from you is what have you learned from educational leaders who are more effective or more able to productively respond to multiple policies in ways that advance their school or district goals? Yeah, those are really interesting insights related to the, to the common core and teacher evaluation, but they really apply more, more widely when we're talking about the introduction of any set of initiatives. I mean, it's rare that any one initiative is being introduced on its own. It's often in a context in which many other things are changing. And so even if on some level they're aligned, they also often introduce just more work, basically, which makes it more difficult to develop that coherence. But they also introduce what you know I've argued are very different theories of action. One of the things in the Atlas Project that I explored in that Differences in Theory article was the fact that in, in some ways we were very aligned around you know, the importance of deep understanding. So in a sense, our theories of learning were aligned and consistent, and we could put a set of standards on paper that everybody subscribed to. But at the same time, our theories of change and how to develop schools that had those kinds of standards and lived up to those kinds of standards, our theories of change were very different. So we were aligned on one dimension, but not on another, and that very much undermined our ability to work together. And I think you can see that in the teacher evaluation and the Common Core policies. So in in one sense, the Common Core, you know, as part of the effort to increase standards, to create higher standards, not just for kids, but for educators in schools. So it's part of the kind of the professionalization of teaching 
and support for the and respect for the work of teachers. On the other hand, a lot of the policies related to teacher evaluation were reflecting management approaches around performance accountability, which essentially don't trust educators to be making the right choices or to have the right motivations that would enable them to reach those higher standards. So in that sense, these policies which are aligned in one level may be in conflict at others, which then produce challenges that uh, leaders have to deal with. In terms of, you know, concretely, what I've learned from leaders, first of all, I've seen everybody struggle with this. And it's not something that a brilliant leader can overcome. This is a challenging condition that they constantly have to deal with. And so they themselves are constantly overwhelmed with demands and sometimes get caught up in the short term, you know, immediate nature of, oh, we've got to get this implemented or we've got to respond to this problem which in some ways undermines the broader effort to develop that sense of coherence around a basic set of priorities. But I think at the end of the day, it's the superintendents, Pablo uh, Munoz, who works in Passaic in, in New Jersey, or David Adderhold in West Windsor, Plainsboro, and other of their colleagues in the New Jersey Network of Superintendents, this network that I work with, who are able to constantly introduce into their language and, re- and go back in their language to the basic set of priorities. And in, in a sense, what they're doing is constantly reminding people of what the instructional priorities are in the classroom and how that relates to all the work that everyone else in the district is doing, whether it's a school board member or a person in the custodial staff or whatever. And it's it's a challenge to kind of play that role, but people I've seen, it, it's part of the language. And so, for example, when they're talking about budgeting, they don't just focus on budgeting. They think about ways in which the budgeting choices that are being made are consistent with the instructional priorities that are, that are guiding the district. And, you know, there's no easy way to say this. There's no simple way to do it. Peter Senge has an article of, you know, about seeing the forest and the trees. That's really what it is. It's about trying to understand the bigger picture as you're dealing with the concrete problems on the ground. Yeah, I think that helps to connect to this as essentially, you know, the reality that leaders face, right? That educators at all levels face rather than something that can be mastered or dealt with, but more an ongoing challenge that leaders face. I know that one thing in my work, and I believe it's Karen Seashore Lewis's work as well, that she draws attention to is the real challenge in not just crafting coherence among these external policies, but I think what you were emphasizing and talking about some of the superintendents you've worked with is connecting these external policies to internal goals and right and not losing attention to your own internal goals given pressure to meet external demands and helping those in the organization to sort of maintain those as priorities i know in karen seashore lewis's work she really made some interesting connections around weak instructional leaders versus stronger instructional leaders that I had found to resonate in my research as well, where essentially, given the high levels of pressure from many of these accountability policies, there's a desire to throw out your own school or district 
goals and priorities and fully adopt these external policies as your goals, which, you know, aren't nearly as inspiring as some of the work that's generally undertaken by schools and districts when strong leaders set those priorities and help others to understand how they connect to the work at the different levels. And I'd just be interested in hearing a little more about any advice you'd give to educational leaders who are maybe feeling overwhelmed in the face of multiple competing high stakes priorities, but yet have the desire to hold steady to their goals for their own schools and districts and the things that they value most when it comes to student learning. That's a nice connection to Karen C. Shore Lewis's work. And a remi- it also reminds me a little bit of the work that Richard Elmore has done, who, who you've worked with as well, um, and around Abelman and Elmore writing about internal versus external accountability. And in fact, those organizations that have developed their own set of goals and own internal sense of accountability are ones that are able to use those external demands productively to meet their own goals. But I think part of the practical advice that leaders have to understand is it's not surprising that they feel overwhelmed under these conditions. It's not surprising that they feel like maybe they don't have a handle on everything they need to have a handle on because they work in a system that has produced those kinds of demands. And so I think part of the practical advice is recognize this is a part of the job. It's, it's not a sign that you're not doing well if you're feeling overwhelmed. It's a, it's a reality of the circumstances in which the work is, is done. And you have to recognize that you're facing conflicting incentives. On the one hand, you are reinforced and required for doing whatever it is these external authorities are asking you to do. On the other hand, in the long run, you're also going to be rewarded for and doing those things that will enable you to meet the goals that you and your community have and that ultimately are the goals that are supposed to be serving uh, students and, and the wider society. So it's important to keep that in mind. I think the other piece of this that is crucial, and, and I've written a little bit about in terms of articles talking about what it takes to manage external demands, it's absolutely critical to find your allies. Who are those people who are going to have your back, who are going to give you protection, who are going to provide you with information and resources? And You know, sometimes it's also important to find who are your critics who you know are not going to stab you in the back, but who are also going to tell it like it is and, you know, help you really think about how to navigate the demands of the wider system. But ultimately, where my work is headed right now is to make the argument that the work of of school leaders, on the one hand, is to really do the nitty gritty work in the classroom and in the schools that are going to improve instruction on fractions, on the basic work that has to be done by teachers and students and to help support that work on the ground at the same time that they're really working to create opportunities to build relationships amongst the members of the school community and the wider community so we can have real discussions about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And it's only out of those conversations together that we develop our common understandings, we build our networks, and we build the, the basically the mechanisms and the foundations that allow us to have that broader sense of coherence that can make our individual efforts work within this larger system. 
Thanks, Tom. And I think that also helps to connect back to the idea that this is really a collective process. While there are individual elements, the goal is to create sort of this environment where people are able to make meaning of these ideas collectively to develop some of those shared expectations that could support um, more meaningful change and more widespread and sustainable change to support student learning. Absolutely. Yeah. And that has to happen. And it can happen with help from the policy level. But at the end of the day, it, it depends on the work on the ground amongst all of those who are involved in the educational process. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and sharing some of your insights into your thinking. I think this will continue to be a really important area of inquiry. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to this series, visit us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.